Uh, hey everyone, welcome back to uh, Women Who Code Radio. We have today Kara Sprague, who is uh, has an amazing career that we're going to talk about, uh, both as a, a woman technologist and leader, and as an advocate for, in this case, young girls in tech. Welcome, Kara, to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome. Let's let's start out in back in the battle days. What was the first job you ever held? You went with a high school job or summer job in college. What did you what did you start out doing? The first thing that I received payment for um, was actually shoveling snow uh, for my neighbor's driveways uh, and also taking care of their dogs. And then that eventually um, matured into babysitting. Wow, excellent. So you started very young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think the, show, the snow shoveling and the, the dog care probably, you know, 10, 10 to 12. And then uh, babysitting was later when I was in high school. Yeah, I did. I did a little bit of an office job for for one of my neighbors as well. Oh, nice. And where was this? He was independently employed, and so I can't even remember what his profession was, but it was a lot of kind of filing and paperwork. <laughs> and where did you grow up? Uh, Denver, Colorado. Ah, hence the snow. Yes. Okay. When, when did you first uh, start thinking about technology as something interesting? Did you uh, have like a you know Commodore or an Atari back in the day, or is that actually maybe even too old for you? Maybe your first computer was a Mac. <laughs> um, my first computer was not a Commodore, nor an Atari, nor a Mac. It was an x86 that my family bought, I think, sometime in 1990. My exposure to it was basically my dad used to hand me these basic scripts that, that he would want me to kind of transcribe into the computer. And, and they were generally um, programs that would yield some sort of fractal image. Uh -huh. um, so that, was, that was my first exposure to coding. Did you uh, take those snippets and start messing with them? Of course. Of course. Excellent. <laughs> Thus was born a lifetime of career path. Exactly. Were you uh, interested in other sort of STEM related subjects as a kid or was it really like hackery and graphics? It was hacker and graphics. I got, you know, with, I don't even remember how many bot it was, but you know, I'd use our modem and, and start connecting to online, um, online boards. Uh, whatever they they were calling them at the time, and so I got into you know some of the games there uh, that were all all visualized in ASCII, and so that was that was a fun experience. Um, I became the go-to person in my fifth grade class um, who knew how to make the computer work when the teacher couldn't seem to get it working, um, and also the the de facto IT um, solutions provider when the printer wouldn't wouldn't interface. Right. Um, <laughs> at a very at a very young age. Um, that was kind of what I was doing. Um, and then eventually that matured into uh, an interest in, in college. So you actually got into being family IT support very early. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I continue in that role today. Um, do you actually have the t-shirt that says, no, I will not fix your computer? <laughs> I don't actually own one, but I wish I did. <laughs> All right, we may have to send you one after this talk. So college, you went off to college. Where did you go? Yeah, I went to MIT, and huh. I, I ended up studying computer science there. Um, and so that was uh, 1997. And in that in that year, actually, about 30% of the incoming freshman class ended up majoring in computer science and electrical engineering at MIT. That seems pretty decent. Yeah, no, it was it was probably the near the peak um, in terms of of the percent of their their classes that were were taking that uh, major. What is it now? Do you know? Uh, gosh, I, I don't know the precise number. I think it's either in the low 20s or the high teens. 
Oof, that's that's a bummer. Well, we'll come back to that. Yeah. And then once you left MIT, what degree did you end up achieving ultimately? So I got, um, let's see, I, I ended up graduating with a, a bachelor's in computer science and electrical engineering at MIT. That's that's just one major. They don't split them out. Um, and then I went on for a um, additional year to get a master's in engineering in the same same um, subject. And then I eventually returned to MIT six months later to get a second master's degree in technology and public policy. Oh, interesting. Uh, talk a little bit about about, about that. What, what's the public policy aspect of it? Uh, the public policy aspect about it is understanding, you know, both from a legal framework and then also from a policy framework within a, um, if you think about within the ecosystem of a city or a nation or the world, how does technology impact the decision making and the kinds of uh, trade-offs and considerations that we need to make in terms of broader changes around a society? And so I'll, I'll give some examples. Like uh, I took a very interesting legal class um, where we talked about how uh, technology was coming in and evaluating cases around, for example, asbestos, thinking about things like a dose response curve, how much exposure is actually too much exposure for a human and thus makes a company liable for the, that human's harm. It seems like something we should have more of. In, yes. In yes. 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 Oy. Well, that's cool, but you didn't stay there uh, working on that type of I mean, have you, well, I guess that's not actually, I should make a question. Have you actually used that degree in, in an employee sort of way? Not in the public sector, though, you know, that's that's something that I, I keep a potential opening for is, is going into public servant, uh, becoming a public servant. I did go for the degree because it felt a lot more me um, than going after an MBA. And uh, it had a big benefit for me because at least at MIT, the program is very much a sister, sister school and a sister program to the Sloan School of Management. And so I had access to all of the Sloan schools, um, basically their, their MBA courses. I took probably a full year of, of MBA courses, but at the same time, I was able also to um, take coursework that was much more around public policy, law, and, and also technology. So I, I was just really excited about the fit um, in terms of the interdisciplinary nature of the program with, with what I was interested in. Well, selfishly, I, I hope you uh, get to the point where you enter the public sector. I think we could use you. <laughs> I mean, a little bit on that one. I mean, I, I ended up actually at, at McKinsey volunteering for the Obama-Biden transition team to get some exposure to what was going on in, in the public sector. And, and one of the things I learned from that is it's a lot better to enter um, when you have much more seniority. Your ability to have impact is just so much higher. I, I can easily imagine that if you're for networking, if nothing else, yes. ability to, to get people engaged. So let's talk about you. You got all of these incredible degrees, uh, fantastic education from all accounts. Never heard anybody say that you know MIT puts out bad graduates. Uh, what was your first job? My first job, I ended up. Um, well, my first internship, I would say, was after my freshman year at MIT. I interned with Hewlett Packard in Fort Collins, Colorado. What I ended up doing was software development work to design the search engine for their SDK. So HP had a package of software, and specifically a software SDK for for their uh, distribution of Unix. Uh huh. And so, and so I, I wrote wow. every search engine for that. Yes, I remember having to support HBox. That was a long time ago. <laughs> When did you first uh, move out of an IC role into management? That so that wasn't until many years later, and that was actually so I, I did um, I did HP internships for two years in college, then then HP split off to Agilent, and then I did Agilent internships. 
Um, eventually, when I graduated from school, I graduated and I went to a job with Oracle where I was still an, an individual contributor. I was a member of technical staff there um, in their application uh, server. Um, and then uh, went back to school for my second master's degree, um, basically boomeranged out to McKinsey. And then it was in McKinsey where, where I actually um, made a, graduated from an IC into a manager. During your time at all these very, well, I mean, these were the prestigious tech companies of their day. Um, what was your experience uh, being a member of the technical staff? How many women tended to be within your organization? What, what sorts of environments were you operating under? Not a lot of women. Uh, it wasn't something that I had a huge amount of awareness about, uh, especially during my internships, because the intern programs themselves would be, tended to be more diverse. Um, you know, at least at HP and Agile and the intern program, I would say felt it felt it was at least 30 to 40 percent women, uh, which coming from uh, computer science at MIT, uh, computer science at MIT, again, I'm just going off of memory here, but my my class in computer sciences was no more than 25 percent women. And so the internships and the tech companies actually felt like it was a step in the right direction. <laughs> um, at or Oracle, I was on a team, um, you know, I was on the only development team that was based in the Chicago region, and I was the only woman on that team. And I think we had about, you know, somewhere between 12 and 15 people. Uh, and so I would say it was really not until my work at Oracle that I really started noticing uh, the disparity in terms of, you know, just far fewer women. Um, and then also became more aware um, culturally uh, just around tech conferences and other things of, of more of uh, unfriendly uh, unfriendly or unwelcoming kind of environment. So you, you didn't experience it in your work environment, but you definitely saw what many women saw at the conferences. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. at, least, at least your work environment was safe. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I have to admit the I, I was attending reInvent the the AWS conference in Las Vegas for several years, and it was horrifying. Even you know, well into the the teens now, how few women overall percentage wise were attending. Uh, this, this continues to be a challenge. I, I actually feel like we've gotten significantly worse as an industry since the 80s and 90s. And I don't I don't know that I necessarily have a ton of hard evidence to back that up, but that's certainly my perception of it. What do you sort of agree with that? Or do you think it's sort of holding? I, I know you said hard. that there's less students at MIT and yeah. your best guess, but. Well, there's a, what it, the dynamic at MIT is interesting because uh, basic computer programming is now so critical to basically everything that everybody does um, that in, that you know students that had you know kind of almost like a cross-functional or cross-interdisciplinary interest like biology and computer science they'll major in biology but then take some computer science courses and then integrate that into what they're doing and so for me the actual the the number that that uh, the number of percent of the body that is majoring in computer science and electrical engineering it doesn't bother me so much that that's coming down as long as that knowledge is getting diffused into the other parts of the com of, of the the institute, which which every, everything I see says that that is happening. Um, the more disturbing trend I'm seeing is the percent of women um, majoring or choosing to major specifically in computer science and electrical engineering, and that that number is appalling. Um, I think something like two or three years ago it was around 16 percent, and and not not improving at all. And I'm, I'm quoting a number across all US uh, universities and colleges. I'm not quoting specific to MIT because I, I don't know what the specific MIT stat is. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think of programs like Harvey Mudd's um, where they put all of that effort and I think they got 50% women in their computer yeah. science program? Yeah, you know, Marie has had just tremendous success there um, and she she deserves all the credit in the world for, you know, just the massive amount of change management that she's done within, within Harvey Mudd in order to facilitate that. Um, you know, I wish that was something that that more of the universities had the stomach to take on. You've gone to McKinsey. Uh, you're now stepping into a leadership role. What inspired that change? I guess, you know, I, I graduated from my um, my Master of Engineering degree in, in January or February of 2001. Um, and that was possibly 2002. When was the when was the bubble? Was 2001. That that was October of 2001? Something like that. I just, I know it was 2001 because I went from a millionaire on paper to a normal person. That's <laughs> <laughs> something someone would remember. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I graduated, I graduated from MIT with my master's in technology um, or my master in engineering in uh, January or February of 2002. And so this was after the bubble had burst and basically the worst time uh, you could possibly be looking for an entry-level position <laughs> in technology. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, the going was rough. Um, you know, I, I'm very grateful, and I did end up landing a, a great job um, with Oracle, and that that was what um, drove me to uh, move out to Chicago. Um, you know, to work on this team, I was excited about what they were doing in terms of voice technology. Um, but I found myself, you know, after three or four months, um, you know, sitting in a cube, uh, working on code, working with the same team, I felt a couple things. One, I felt bored, um, just not getting stimulated enough with, you know, uh, enough different problems. And then secondly, I just felt like I had a potential for much higher impact. Um, and so that was uh, that was about the same time that, you know, I got um, my notice that I'd been uh, accepted into this second master's program, technology and public policy. And, you know, at that point, I just went to my boss and I said, hey, I got invited to, this, to join this program. I'm very interested in going back to school. You know, it's been a blast, um, you know, and he, he graciously actually offered to let me continue in a part time role at Oracle while I did that second master's degree. Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. So that that was a huge, um, hugely in favor. And it was very helpful. Um, and supportive. Now, at, at the end of the degree, though, um, you know, I did have an option to go back to Oracle, um, but I also knew that the education would afford me, um, you know, other uh, career opportunities. Um, and I was, I was especially interested in a couple. Um, one was in consulting, and then secondly, in a in a think tank. And the thing that attracted me to both of those was just the concept of, you know, it's very project based work. Um, you get exposed to a range of, of different companies, a range of different projects, um, and even, you know, have, have the opportunity to see a bunch of different parts of the world. And so that was ultimately what drew me to McKinsey. That's fantastic. And what sorts of, um, what sorts of things were you doing at McKinsey? I mean, it's, there's research and, uh, you know, discussions and that sort of thing. But talk a little bit about, as you are able, some of the, the really interesting things that you were doing. Yeah, so I um, I joined McKinsey uh, as as part of their their client serving uh, portion. So I was a consultant right from the beginning, and the kind of work that I I immediately just started doing was mostly for high tech clients and also eventually some service providers. But but what where I found my niche and where I found that I was able to have um, you know a lot of impact was bringing the lens of 
of truly understanding the the technology and the engineering behind what one of our clients was trying to offer to their customers and being able to articulate the value proposition in a way that then bridged the gap between the technology and the business. One project I was doing was looking at a kind of technology which was very extensible um, and really appealed to a broad ecosystem of partners to build on top. And what we were doing was trying to synthesize, you know, what are a few example, um, we call them deals, but example deals that a partner could then sell to their customers based on this technology. And so that required understanding what the technology was, what it could do, uh, what the market would be for potential solutions around that technology, uh, and then building out a pitch to those partners so that they could then get excited about using that technology to serve their customers. And once you started doing this, and I have a lot of thoughts uh, around that process of being really critical, you know, how valuable do you think it would be if more uh, individual contributors had opportunities to get some exposure to that process? It feels like we keep our, our engineers somewhat in isolation, uh, and I, I can't feel like that's good for the industry. No, I'm, I'm totally with you, um, which is, I feel like a lot of my path, and it's it hasn't been very, it wasn't purposeful at the beginning. A lot of my path has been very much focused on interdisciplinary things and getting exposure to as much of a variety uh, and array of, of the problem sets that we face as possible, um, ranging from you know the deep technical engineering problems, architecture problems, but then also getting into the business side and understanding you know what what are the customer pain points that that customers are really seeking to address, and then how do you tie that back to the technology? Um, you know that that for me is really um, critical knowledge and critical learning for everybody um, because we're not gonna solve the huge problems that we're facing overall as, as, a, as a human race, uh, unless we um, figure out how to address those problems holistically. And you can't do that if everybody is very narrowly focused on their own thing. No, absolutely. Which leads us to our next topic, which is, you know, you've, you've, uh, we've gone back into a more sort of product oriented role, you're at F5 now, mm -hmm. which is a company I, as, a, as a director of systems engineering in a past life, I gave a lot of money to happily. <laughs> <laughs> Love those devices. Um, so now you're, you're back in product uh, and you've started doing a bunch of advocacy work. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. What is, uh, what's your main focus these days uh, around this sort of thing? Yeah, my, my big focus in, in the, the work that I do around advocacy is really around uh, women and girls in STEM. Um, and in particular, I'm on the board of, of Girls Who Code. And so that's a uh, organization and a mission that is very, very near and dear to me, very personal to me um, about how do we drive for gender parity in tech. And so um, I got exposed to Girls Who Code, I wanna say it was 2015, um, when you know a couple of my colleagues at McKinsey um, introduced me to, to Reshma, the CEO there. Um, and we did some, um, at McKinsey, we did some pro bono work to um, help girls who code think through their, their long-term strategy and how they would scale to have the impact that they were looking, looking to have, which was at that, at that time, I think that the tagline was teach a million girls to code. Um, and you know, over the course of a few years, we we worked closely with them on on strategic questions, and then eventually I, I joined the board. And so it's something that uh, brings me a tremendous amount of inspiration, and it's a tremendous privilege and an honor to be able to work with an organization that's having so much impact on a, on a cause and a mission that I care so deeply about. Yeah, and I want to give a little shout out to McK to McKinsey. There, you know, many companies will gladly hand over some amount of 
of budget uh, in support of nonprofit organizations, but McKinsey provided something very valuable um, that was germane to you know your your business area. And I think that's that's really cool, and I wish more companies could think of ways of doing that. Um, and so let's see. So that was while at McKinsey. You've carried that into F5. How has the advocacy work informed how you approach uh, your position as a leader uh, with within your companies? Well, it's it's a it's a very important. Um, so the, the work I do in advocacy, you could say, it broadly groups into the bucket of of uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and diversity and inclusion as a as a core value and tenant is something that's uh, in an organization is very important to me. So it was it was something that you know McKinsey uh, internally um, you know has very a very large amount of focus on um, because consulting is another industry or space where um, you know the the ratio of women and men is just not not what it what it, what it should be. It doesn't reflect college graduates. It doesn't reflect the the, the population. It doesn't reflect the people that that control the share of a share of wealth. <laughs> right. um, and so there's work to do there. And, and I carried that with me when I came to F5. Um, one of the things that you know really really um, got me excited about F5 was just the shared values around especially diversity and inclusion that I found in and Francois specifically, our CEO. And then, um, you know, as a, as a new executive team here at the company, um, we have put in place or codified a new set of, of cultural values that we, we encompass in our five behaviors, of which we create a more diverse and inclusive F5 as one of those five. Wow, so not only does your advocacy work sort of help you flesh out your overall experience in tech, it's actually a driver for how you cho chose your career path. Absolutely. Like, yeah, that that is fantastic, and I would like to see that become more true for more people to be able to have for companies to have such opportunities provided. Right? It's like, oh, I don't have to worry about companies might have bad culture. I I know for a fact that the following companies I'm interested in have excellent efforts around this. That that would that would be a great place to get to as an industry. And and just to build on that, by the way, because I, I talked about our five behaviors and how you know we, we were very public about those five behaviors. If you want to see what we stand for, you can simply find them and and see that we create a more diverse and inclusive F five is one of them. Um, but we're also putting a lot of money behind it. Um, so so at, again, as a, as a new executive team at F five, we have made a very purposeful decision to invest um, you know part of our our operating profit into uh, philanthropy. Um, and much of that is focused on on two issues. Uh, one of the issues that we're focused on is specifically women and and girls in STEM. Um, and so that that's an area where we're focusing quite a lot of our, our philanthropic efforts efforts across the company. That's in terms of employee volunteering, employee giving, and also overall giving from from our profit. And then the second issue that we're focused on is homelessness in Seattle. Well, that that's where you're based now. Yes. Okay. Far less wind. <laughs> So when when F5 approaches this, is there are you able to correlate it to a strategic value? You know, future employees is a is one obvious one. Um, recruitability maybe could be another one. How do you approach this? From you know, it's a public company. Yeah. Uh, big investments have to be justified to the board. You know, we all know how this system works. Like, how does this work for F5? How do you guys approach that? Um, you know, I think we approach it from the perspective of. Uh, it's something it, that that part of F5 and, and how close we are in terms of wanting to drive good in the world is basically something that has attracted each of each of the new the new team members to the company 
and what we want to do. Uh, we want to do more than just, you know, have impact as a, as a business. We want to have impact on society and the world. And so that's a really important, um, I, I, I hate to boil it down to uh, talent <laughs> attract, attraction, but that has drawn the, the leaders and the executives and also, you know, many members of our team into the company for exactly that. So it's a, it's a self-reinforcing system now. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. That's super cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about Girls Who Code and the Summer Immersion Program. How did this come about and what, what values uh, do you think this is going to bring to the participants? Sure. Um, so, so Girls Who Code, the initial, um, the initial instantiation of Girls Who Code and its most important uh, crown jewel is its Summer Immersion Program, um, or SIP. For short, and and what that is, it's a program that Girls Who Code runs with corporate sponsors, and it takes about 20 girls per program over seven weeks and teaches those 20 girls how to code. Now, when when Girls Who Code started, they had a few a small number of partnerships uh, for their SIP programs, and now on on uh, every year they're running about 80 of those around the United States um, in different different parts of the country. And it relies on, on corporate sponsors to raise their hand and say, we will fund uh, you know, these efforts because it includes a teacher. Um, those corporate sponsors provide the facilities. And so in each of those programs, the girls go on site and many times get, get uh, exposure to and see what, what life is like at a tech company for, for seven uh, weeks. Um, they get exposure to uh, employees at the company. So they arrange different workshops and um, presentations where, where we talk about different topics such as sponsorship, you know, how do you think about um, setting up your LinkedIn profile, you know, what is it like to work in a tech company, uh, learning about the, the work of the tech company. And so it's a very broad based program where they're learning both uh, very concrete skill sets around coding, but then also getting exposure to, to a workplace. And what's the age range for these girls? Yep, they're high school or high school juniors, sometimes seniors. Okay, so 15, 16, 17, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. And do you guys track, uh, oh, that's terrible of me. Do you all, do you folks uh, track um, the, uh, you know, the number of girls who graduate from this program going into STEM-related uh, or computer science-related programs in college? Absolutely. Um, and that, what, are your, what are your numbers? <laughs> it's, a it's a critical metric um, that Girls Who Code tracks. And uh, I'm not going to get the precise numbers right, but the uh, change in um, when when the girls start the program, you know, there's an in ingoing survey saying, you know, what's your what's your likelihood or your uh, preference for studying computer science and electrical engineering in in college? Um, and then we ask again at the end of the program, and the SIP program has a dramatic change uh, in in the girls' um, desire to then go study computer science and electrical engineering. Um, and then what we also track, because we now have, um, the program started in 2012, and we now have a fairly robust alumni database of girls who are now in college. And so we also track uh, their, uh, their actual um, majoring in computer science and electrical engineering. So we know which of the, which of the, the alumni have done that. Uh, and then now we're starting also to track, because the first girls have now graduated from college, you know, whether or not they're actually going into the computing field. And hopefully staying there. Right, right. And maybe joining Women Who Code, uh, which works really hard on retention. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's really it's, it's really cool. So like I said, the summer immersion program is, is the crown jewel of Girls Who Code. It's the basis for the, all the curriculum development that they've done. 
but then they've also expanded into other programs. For example, uh, there's a, a very broad-based clubs program, which uh, involves girls at the middle school age, as well as clubs uh, for girls in high school. Um, and, and what that is, is it's a different um, format uh, where basically you have uh, leaders who raise their hand in, in schools and organize those meetings as an after-school type of thing over a series of weeks and months. Uh, to teach similar curriculum. So eventually the girls that are in those clubs all jointly learn how to how to code together in a very um, inclusive and uh, uh, welcoming environment. Um, and they build other skill sets around resiliency, um, you know, and other really important skills for career progression. And so that's another program that Girls Who Code sponsors. And those alumni, too, of the clubs are, are now also part of the, the Girls Who Code alumni network. And so there's efforts in place to then keep those alumni connected as they go into, into college and then eventually after college. That's fantastic. Here's a question for you. So I recently had the privilege of uh, emceeing Google's Code Jam mm-hmm. finals live stream, Code Jam being a, a world coding competition. It starts out with something like 75,000 online participants and it gets wheedled down to a final 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know the types of problems that they're having to solve in very short amount of time are, are just amazing. And I don't think since the uh, competition transitioned to having 25 finalists at the very end, I don't think there has ever been a woman who's made the finals. And so I've, I've been thinking about why is that? One of the things that I think is an interesting uh, factoid is a lot of the competitors come from countries like the Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, and apparently code competitions are a really big thing over there. Hmm. Um, not so much that I have seen male or female uh, in this country, at least not nearly to the same degree. Google hosts Code Jam, of course, there's Hash Code, which is a team-based competition. I'm wondering how much do you think building up um, maybe girls who code competition teams might be a fun way to kind of tap into that teenage competitive spirit and maybe further get excitement around this sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's a super that's a super interesting idea. Certainly look into. I, I don't know the extent to the, today that they tap into coding competitions, um, but I can imagine that you could get a lot of excitement and energy amongst um, several of the alumni or even the current participants in the program to participate in something like that. Yeah, perhaps you know you have eighty immersion programs going on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be the last week, perhaps. <laughs> Not that we need to compete, but it, you know, there's there's definitely kind of a that's a moonshot that that I feel that we have as an industry. How can we make things like that even more equitable? Make the idea of programming this kind of fun thing that we all do, not just yeah. for nerdy guys. And there's one guy who has won the past six years in a row, and so we need to find somebody who can dethrone him. <laughs> wow. All right. So, okay. So we talked a little bit about how how Girls Who Code really helped transition girls into those majors uh, and into hopefully uh, industry. What's next for what Girls Who Code hopes to do? Maybe That's go perfect. global or? Well, we are we are expanding globally, and so we have started um, introducing our first clubs programs in Canada, the UK, and also uh, India. And so that is something that is something that that we are working on um, very new as of the last year or so. Uh, another thing that we're looking at is again now that we now have girls who are exiting college with computer science degrees, 
and, and looking at the workforce is how do we start really closing the loop, giving them a very welcoming place for them to land with those jobs. We were really worried that the worst thing, the worst thing that could happen is, you know, they get out of the college with a computer science degree and all of a sudden they hit those, those interview experiences that we've all, we've all read about or either experienced ourselves of just, uh, you know, running into the entire bro culture wall. <laughs> right. And so um, that's, that's something that we're, we're really, uh, that's really top of mind is how do we make sure that they land in a good spot? I think that's so incredibly important. Um, talking to some women who have left the industry, they, they have this uh, sense of isolation. Actually, it's not just women, uh, also uh, people of color um, yeah. have this, this sense of isolation. So Girls Who Code in, in a very real way kind of provides that first networking opportunity and fight against that and and hopefully you know give them the wherewithal to stick it out and to you know keep finding as you found McKinsey and Oracle and F5 found good places to land so they they are out there and I think hopefully they're increasing well and that's that's one of the really important things that we look to foster as part of the summer immersion programs and the clubs it's really this concept of sisterhood mm-hmm. um, so and, and the idea behind sisterhood is that the girls all support each other um, they learn how to uh, really collaborate together and, and be there and provide that safety net for each other. Uh, and we look to carry that forward into colleges. So the concept of um, we have these things called college loops, which involve not just Girls Who Code alumni, but then also girls in the college that maybe weren't affiliated with Girls Who Code before, but have an interest in coding. And the idea of the college loop is, again, to reinforce some sort of support network. And we're going to carry that forward into, into the workplace. And one thing that we have coming up, I'll, I'll just put a quick plug for it. We're launching a campaign on the International Day of the Girls. So that's October 11th. And so we're, ha- we're having basically a, a virtual uh, or a global digital march called the March for Sisterhood. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll have to find out. Do you have a sponsor page somewhere uh, for this? Or Yes, um, I, can, I can send that across to you. Yeah, that would be great. And make, make sure and include it in the show notes so people can have a look at that. Definitely a worthy opportunity, I'm sure, to donate or volunteer. Yes, please. I mean, if that's if this is a cause that's near and dear uh, to you, as as I sure it is to everybody, a lot of people that listen to this, Girls Who Code is a great organization, and the money will go to good use. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kara. I really appreciate you taking the time and for all that you do uh, with Girls Who Code and being uh, an amazing example for all of us women in high tech industry. And uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. been listening to Women Who Code Radio. For more information about today's episode or to ask questions or submit ideas for future topics, check out our show notes at womenwhocoderadio.blogspot.com. To learn more about Women Who Code, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, go to the main website, womenwhocode.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at Women Who Code. I'm Tara Hernandez, at Tequila Rista on Twitter, and thanks for listening.